Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Rippy writes with Brian Scott. Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Friday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a good Friday show for you. Coming at you a little bit later. Had some uh, MacBook issues, and by that, I think I mean my MacBook is fraud, but we're back up and running. Um, but uh, coming at you a little later today than usual. Sorry about that. But we've got Bracken Ray on to do a uh, Ole Miss hoops check-in. Huge game for the Rebels against Memphis tomorrow. That's a ranked Memphis team coming off a loss. Uh, really inexplicable loss at Georgia on Wednesday night. Got into some of the issues that are uh, plaguing this team offensively. Why there's maybe some reason for optimism or at least upside on the defensive end of the floor. And uh, the opportunity ahead plus a little early look at Memphis and how Ole Miss matches up with them. And then second, uh, after that, we have Antonio Morales, good pal of mine, USC beat writer for The Athletic. You'll remember he covered Ole Miss for the Clarion Ledger for a couple years, does a fantastic job. I had him on to talk Lincoln Riley, uh, the end of the Clay Helton era, and what this means for a sleeping giant in college football that is USC and kind of finally seems like they're getting in with the times and into the modern age of college football. So that was a good conversation. No uh, fresh cuts with Greg this week. That was both a scheduling and a tech technology issue. But uh, I do have Skybox's picks at the end. So if you make it to the end of this podcast, don't you dare fast forward. But if you make it to the end of the podcast, we have Skybox's picks for you. Before we get to all that, I want to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks, the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out. They're destroying it. In NFL, there's quite literally no one hotter in the National Football League than Skybox right now. They are uh, seeing the board clearly, for the lack of a better phrase, uh, or for an understatement, I should say. Need to check them out. They're going to have a picks package that'll fit your price range. They're doing a $100 giveaway right now. Go check that out on their Twitter. Uh, you, can be, uh, you can enter to win a drawing that's 100 bucks, no uh, cash, no questions asked or uh, a week of free picks. Check that out at Skybox Picks, Skybox Picks on Twitter. College basketball free plays every day from Skybox. That is their best model by far. That is their words, not mine. The stats prove it, back it up for themselves. You go to skyboxsportspicks.com slash free plays, and you can get a daily free play from Skybox uh, as a little taster. But check out that giveaway out on Twitter at Skybox Picks. They're the best in the industry. Use the promo code RIPPY. You get... 20% off. Although if you're entering that giveaway, I believe you're going to want to use the promo code contest, but uh, see the instructions on their, uh, on their Twitter page and site for that. Check them out. Skybox sports picks podcast. Also brought to you by LB's university Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy rights subscriber, you get discounted meets. That's rippyrights.substack.com. I uh, get it. Type in your email. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week plus a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go pr uh, show proof of subscription to Greg, and he will get you set. And then go try out everything else they have there. It's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have it. Uh, fresh seafood, all kinds of delicious sausages, 
crab stuff, mushrooms. You need to go find your own favorites there. It is awesome. And if you're into grilling or any sort of delicious food, Craig wants to make it even better. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Let's get to Bracken Ray. Get a little uh, Ole Miss hoops check-in. Buckle up. Let's have a Friday. All right, doing a little Ole Miss hoops check-in here on the Friday pod. Uh, we have former Ole Miss or former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray joining us. Ole Miss has an important game on Saturday against Memphis. Really, probably their best chance at a quality win, given that the West Virginia deal never materialized in Charleston. We talked right after the first game. Haven't checked in since. Ole Miss is what four and two. They lose two games in the Charleston Classic. They lose a pretty frustrating Sunday game to Boise State after they lost um, a game late to fairly average Marquette team. Um, so we'll check in, get into some of that, get into some recruiting. Uh, you are back from Vegas. Everyone that does this podcast with me has apparently gone to Vegas. Like apparently that's a thing. I'm gonna have to send Colin Brister to Vegas. Weldon got back like two weeks ago. How was that trip? It was a good time. It was a good time. We uh, were there for a couple days, and um, first night we were there, got to go to the Duke Gonzaga basketball game. Twenty thousand plus there. I know it was on primetime TV. It's kind of funny that game was like at ten thirty, like Eastern time. So if 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 you if you wanted to watch that game, uh, you had you had to stay up late, but. Um, Really good time, great environment. Uh, Duke and Gonzaga fans are definitely in it. A lot of pros on the floor as well. But, yeah, we had a great time uh, there in Vegas, and I'm glad that I'm back and recovered. Yeah, I hope everybody made it back in one piece. It sounds like everyone did. Uh, the classic thing on those bachelor trip deals, you always have, like, one asshole that just does something absurd the first night. Even if it doesn't, like, ruin the trip, he may be in, he may be uh, on the shelf for the rest of the trip or at least not operating at close to 100% capacity. So as long as you can survive that first night, most of the time it ends up okay. Yeah, ditto, ditto, no doubt. <laughs> um, So that game, I was we were just talking right before we started recording that game was awesome. Duke Gonzaga, you mentioned the amount of people were there. What was the environment like? I just a little backstory. I was actually uh, having a beer with your dad and my dad. We went home after that. I didn't have any plans to stay up for the entirety of that game. But those last like 10, 11 minutes were so electric. I like couldn't go to sleep. I didn't have a dog in the fight in any shape or form. But I was telling you, I was like, I, I couldn't go to sleep. It was awesome stuff. Two teams will probably see at the end in March. How was, uh, how was the environment? What was the game like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, environment was fantastic. You know, obviously those are two, <laughs> those are two programs that really care about um, hoops and, you know, it's cool seeing, I mean, as soon as we got there, there were thousands of fans in Vegas and, you know, when we were leaving, there were still thousands of fans there. So it seemed like a lot of their fans uh, kind of did like the Thanksgiving deal in Vegas. It was probably, probably about 60% Duke fans, I would say, um, at the arena, but yeah, 20,000 plus their largest college basketball game in the history of Nevada. And, you know, like you were saying, the last couple of minutes of the game were obviously great, but really and truly, I don't think Duke ever got up by more than like seven or so. So it was always like every possession was super important. And, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of pros on the, on, on the court as well as there always is uh, for Duke, but Gonzaga is really starting to recruit at a high level as well. And, uh, get some five stars in their program. So it's cool to see that, you know, Fuse always evaluated well and 
done a really good job with some foreign players, um, especially like in Poland, but now he's able to do a little bit of mixture of that, you know, and some high caliber high school players as well. What, uh, what are your thoughts so far on Chet Holmgren? I've actually watched Gonzaga twice. Is he going to get knocked in the draft just for being a needler? Like, so I swear <laughs> someone's going to look at him and just be like, this guy can't be the number one overall pick. There's just no way he's too skinny. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's interesting you say that. And um, the thing is, I think he plays a hair toucher uh, tougher than he looks. So, like, you know, he, I mean, he's a string bean for sure. He plays a little bit tougher than I was anticipating and kind of hold his, can hold his own down there. But man, he is, he's super, uh, he's super skilled and, I really want to see uh, what he looks like throughout the rest of non-conference and in the tournament as well. Um, they've got a challenging, you know, they've got a good little conference there from, from a mid-major standpoint, but see what he looks like, get some guys that can kind of bang him around a little bit to see what his true pro potential is. Best player on the floor in that game, in your opinion? Oh, Polio for sure. Not even close? Yeah, I mean, he had 20 in the first half. So that sounds like that's going to stick because that's, that was the same consensus from that game at MSG against Kentucky. Yeah, he, he's a player. Um, I think that he's a guy that's got a you know shot to be top two, three draft pick. But what really impressed me, you know, he didn't have a great second half because I think he was – I was trying to figure out from the game what was happening. Everybody around me was saying that he was cramping and had to go get IVs uh, in the second half. But – the impressive part is in the first half, he can kind of do a little bit of everything offensively. There's not really any, any gaps in his game. Um, he's going to be a lot of fun to watch both at the college and NBA level. And I think that he's a guy that, you know, at some point down the road could kind of be the face of an NBA team. Yeah. He, uh, he, there's, I, I, who would you come like, I hate doing the NBA comp thing. Cause it's not even completely fair, but like, do you see anyone else's game in him? Cause it, to me, it's like a lot of mix. Like I can't decide yet. And I'm, I'm terrible at that anyway. Please don't mistake me for some guy that cutting up film and doing draft boards and stuff, but usually I can get a general feel. Do you have any sort of comp? Mm, I don't really know. Um, I have to think about that a little bit for him. Um, I don't know at the college level who he really reminds me of. Um, but like I said, like the thing with him, that's going to be like the, the, the difference between a good college player and a, and a good NBA player is these guys in college that can go play in the professional, uh, world, they don't have any weaknesses really to their game. Um, they've got some things that are average, but, um, for him, like he is good at all three levels, he can get downhill and score. He can pull up mid-range and he can shoot threes as well. So that that's that's um that's why I'm really high on him. But I'll I'll have to think about that of an NBA comp. So I read an article the other day that was doing the Chris Weber thing, and I wasn't really old enough to remember like real Chris Weber. But another one I found interesting that I kind of was like, oh, that makes a little sense, just because for whatever reason I went to two New Orleans Hornets games. Well, that's a blast from the past and watched him when he was actually still pretty good, like a skinnier David West. Okay, a skinnier David West, yeah. I'm looking right now and seeing – I don't love all these, like Blake Griffin. I don't – Wendell I don't Carter. That. No. He's got, he's got some guard – I mean, you know, he's got, he's got some guard to his game. Um, so, 
I don't know. I, I haven't seen one that I like yet, but um, I've got to think about that one a little bit. He's a, he's a unique player and how polished he is at all, all, uh, all levels. It is still basically November. I don't know if that's in John Rothstein's repertoire, but we are the first day of December as we record this. But Ole Miss, 4-2. and two, They have a huge game coming up this weekend. They got by Ryder the other night. Uh, I watched about the – I think I watched part of the first half and then about seven minutes of the second half. I had too much going on from a podcast standpoint. And I actually had to work the old day job a little bit later than I wanted to on Tuesday night. So I didn't get to catch a ton of this. Seemed like they were slog. Uh, it was kind of a slog a little bit early, and really turned it on offensively in the second half. Was this the Dementio Vaughn revenge game? Yes, it was. He played twenty nine minutes and started. How about that? Um, what is it? What did he end up scoring? He had nine points on four of twelve shooting. Yeah, that's had eight rebounds though. Yeah, nine and eight. I mean, you knew he was he was going to come out, you know, ready to play. Um, nothing like a school to another school back to the original school for him yeah i uh that's a that's an interesting one i wonder if there's precedent for that i'm sure someone has done that before but no one comes top of mind but anyway Ryder probably not making the tournament this year i will just throw (laughs) that one out there i think you can cross them off in november what do you make of this team through six games because or i guess it's technically seven games they're five and two excuse me but it seems to me that it's sort of maybe what we thought it would be from an Mm -hmm. issue standpoint and what they're good at standpoint. And I guess we can start with that. This team is struggling to score the basketball. How much of that do you think it's early season trying to figure out, you know, who plays where and who can become a guy and how much do you think it could linger like it did a year ago? Like, where are you on that? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because, um, you know, looking at it right now, their perimeter shooting, um, we know personnel-wise, like that is not, um, you know, that that's not going to be a strength of theirs. It's actually not been too bad so it's far been way this year. Better than I thought it would be. Oh, way way better than we thought it would be for sure. And um, you know, for for them, the thing that is going to be really really tough for them, and it's it's kind of the obvious at this point is there's nobody that can really go out there and create and get you a bucket. Um, Jarkel, you know, is the guy that if you just looked at, if you just looked at his stat line, you'd say, okay, here's the guy who, you know, can go get a bucket for us, but really and truly where he's scoring this year is where we talked about in preseason him needing to shoot more and that's spot up. He's done a really good job um, from spot up this year. And so there's a lot of stats that you can see out there about, you know, people's percentages by play types. And one thing I found interesting with Jarkel this year is he's shooting 50 percent in a spot up shot this year. So that can be both, you know, three pointers or just a spot up in general, um, you know, inside the three point line that compares to last year. He shot 33 percent from spot up. And so that is definitely improved Um, from a quantity standpoint. It's up a little bit as well. And so for Jarkel, he's doing a good job spot up, but his ISO game, which this is a trend with the rest of the team as well. His ISO game is, is terrible right now. Um, His points per possession and his field goal percentage are awful right now. And really and truly that is true for the whole team. And last year, that was kind of the case, too. But the thing that skewed that stat is 
Romello White from a post ISO standpoint was really good. You could go give him the ball and he could go get a bucket for you in kind of a post ISO situation. So for this team right now, you know, the issue is a, they're not getting anything done um, half court offensive wise. Um, I, I think that, and Rippy, you've seen this down even to junior high and middle school level. You have sometimes where players are a little too focused on just running the offense rather than going and trying to get a bucket. And that kind of has been a trend the past, you know, two years with, um, with this group is they're too focused on running the offense. Nobody can beat anybody off the dribble to go get a bucket. And so, what they need right now, and, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible that Ruffin is hurt and hopefully they can get him back at some point soon, but they need somebody that can go break the offense every now and then and go get a bucket. If that person can do that too, it'll open up uh, driving and passing lanes as well. And as we said, you know, the, the jury's out on the personnel, but at least seven games into it right now, um, from a perimeter shooting standpoint, they're shooting it a little bit better. So if somebody can go break the offense, open up some passing lanes that could really help them offensively. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And that's an important point when it comes particularly to Joiner, because when you do just look at it on paper and you like at his raw statistics for the season, it's like, oh, this guy's awesome. This is who they play through offensively. What he's at, I'm going to make sure I have this correctly for the season. And of course, I think right before I did this, I deleted it, but whatever. He was a little over 15 points a game. I yeah. think he's at, all right, here we go. I'm just going to pull it up. He's at 15, yeah, 15 and a half a game. He's at three and a half, or excuse me, assist wise, he is at, 22 and seven, whatever, a little over three a game, but you're right. None of that is coming off like them necessarily playing through him from an isolation standpoint. It is, as you mentioned, the spot up shooting and you, you, you had a great statistic in there compared to last year. But even if you look at that, just from like a strictly like raw number standpoint and just go by for the three point line, he's at 44% from three point range. Yeah. And it's, he's 15 to 34. So it's, it's not like he's taken what that's, a little over right at five a game, basically. So he's, mm -hmm. it's pretty efficient in that sense, but you're right. It's a lot of spot up stuff. It's a lot of, you know, I haven't, I didn't get to watch much of last night. I certainly was not locked into Valley on Friday or whenever <laughs> that was, but it does seem like they're running him off of stuff. And that seems to be a little bit more of his offense to where you're exactly right where his isolation is sort of a microcosm of what this team is right now. It's not good. And the simplified way to describe it as you just did is they don't have enough bucket getters and why not by enough. I don't, I mean, they don't have any right now. And that was sort of the rub last year, right? Not enough. The guys could go get vertical. It was a lot of horizontal motion. My man, Greg, who is uh, big into horses, big into meats, big into football, <laughs> casual basketball fan hates the dribble weave. He doesn't understand it. No. <laughs> but like it in some ways it is sort of indicative of like okay because you know you're supposed to eventually get downhill on that sucker like it's not supposed to yep. go sideways 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 you know for 20 seconds of the shot clock which I always get cracked he always cracks me up when he texts me about it but that is sort of their problem and even beyond joiner like it's it's sort of unfair to put it all on him but just sticking with him for a second this sort of manifested itself at the end of the Marquette game when that game got tight and it was a you know, bring it up the court, more of a half-court offensive game, which pretty much all close games come down to, even at the end of games in the NBA. It's pretty much at any level of basketball. 
They didn't really necessarily know who they were offensively. And when you don't know exactly who you're going to play through or even just what you're going to do, you need a guy to get the basketball with about nine seconds left. And like you mentioned, break the offense and go create a good shot. And they just weren't mm-hmm. able to do that. He had a, a point in that game where it's like five and a half, six minutes left where he had the little, like he, he made a pretty good move on a guy. He got by him and then did a step back about a step in front of the uh, free throw line and made it. And I was like, okay, maybe that's something. Like, you, I wonder what the next four possessions would look like. And the next four or five possessions for Ole Miss as a whole were a disaster. And I think that's what this team is missing. And, you know, if you're gauging it from a message board temperature standpoint, people are sort of down on this team. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that there's a reason to be or not to be. But I do think the fact that, you're seeing similar symptoms of the same issue that plagued this team last year that made it a tough product to watch at times is probably feeding into that a little where I will offer room for optimism is from a personnel standpoint. I do think the jury is still out. Like you just said, but I do think they have more options. Like, I don't know if Breakfield's going to be any good. The results haven't been great on that end so far. He's turned it over quite a bit. He hasn't really been, I don't know what I expected from him offensively, but he hasn't been what I thought. But do you agree that, like, there it could be someone? And who do you think it is? Because at the end of the day, like, it, Joyner still <laughs> seems like the best option. But, you know, you get 12, 13 games into this thing, you, you run out of time to wait on that. You know, and here, here's where it's a really interesting, interesting thing. And I've talked to, you know, some of my Juco coaching buddies about this is, all right, so isolation. To give you a metric there, Ole Miss is bottom 5% in the country in isolation. They have scored – 13 points this whole season in ISO situations. That's kind of okay. remarkable. They played seven games. Well, well, I mean, how many games do you think uh, Chris Warren or Moody had where they scored 13 or more in isolation situations? And at some points when they got hot and a half. <laughs> yeah. But on the flip side of that, Ole Miss is top 2% in the country in transition offense. So – We've talked about this, you and I, for a couple months now. It's like, all right, this team has got to play differently than they did last year. Um, And our hypothesis is, hey, they're going to get out and run more. And they have. Uh, They are really, really good transition offense this year so far. Where I get nervous, and we've talked about it, is do you want to go get into a track meet with some of these teams that have more talent than you and have better athletes than you. And so I think Saturday is going to be the first test of that. Um, Ole Miss is really, really good transition right now. Memphis is the Ole Miss football of uh, basketball right now in the sense that their average time of possession is super, super low. They get out and go. And so for Ole Miss, I think this is a really good indicator of what conference play is going to look like. Because right now when you're playing the cupcakes, why not go get out and transition and do it as much as you can? But when you get to conference play, that could bite you a little bit. And the margin of, you know, points scored per game between the two teams could get even bigger um, than it is right now because you're on the flip side. You're really, really good in half court D as well. So that's something with, with this game. Um, obviously, Memphis is a really good team. There's going to be, you know, I think it'll be close to a sellout. but Ole Miss is kind of combination and trying to find the happy medium between running out and transition, which they're really, really good at, 
and half court offense, which we haven't seen a, a, a ton of positive things yet on, I think is going to is going to show a lot of where this team will be at going into conference play. Throw the coaching hat on and don't mistake this because we'll probably do this at times throughout the year. Like, don't mistake this for like second guessing Kermit. It's not the point of this segment. If you were doing this, how would you fix this? What What do you think is the best option for them to fix the half court offense and them having some sort of consistent see at the end of games? Because that's it, it at its core. Like, this is what basketball is now. You can run great offense at the end of games, and that's all well and good, but they're going to be possessions where you just have to have a guy that's better than his man off the dribble and goes and gets you a basket. What would you, how would you fix it from what you've seen so far? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough thing because it's kind of all about personnel. Like we've said, like you don't have that guy that, that can, that can really go get you a bucket. Um, with the, with the, the weave offense, um, it's got some good things in it. And Ole Miss offensively is very disciplined with how they run it. Um, they score a lot off of back cuts with it as well. You know, the only thing that I've, I've, thought in my head um, the past two years with the offense is out, without running too much ISO stuff for a particular person, I'd like to see like more quick hitter action out of the offense to where, you know, you've got your continuation, which is this, this dribble weave offense, but also there's kind of some quick hitters for some guys as well. And you saw that um, a lot with TD and Brian year one, they'd run some stuff and put them on the elbows. Um, I, I just don't think you see it as much anymore. And obviously personnel is a little bit different than it was that year. Um, but that's kind of the thing is kind of mixing it up a little bit. You've got this continuation offense. It, they run it really well, but they don't, the result is not what they want. Like it looks pretty, but the re- result does not always end in buckets. So if you could find this happy medium between your half court offense and transition, and also, um, you know, start to run some quick hitters in there as well to kind of keep the defense on their toes. You know, that's the one thing that I see. But at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of this is personnel, you know. Absolutely. And another part of that is Jamie and Brakefield. What have you seen from him so far? To me, the two things that have stuck out is he's turned the basketball over offensively a little more than I mean, more than he should. But I don't know necessarily what I expected because you didn't get a huge sample size of him at Duke. Do you think that's an option offensively that they could play through at all? Or what do you think he his ceiling for as a player is based off what you've seen so far, at least in this this year? We don't have to go two, three years in advance. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think he's one that we, we've got to give time and give him the opportunities to make stuff happen. I mean, look, he is not ever going to be the best athlete on the floor. Um, he p- kind of plays an old man's game. I think we need to let him play that old man's game in the offense a little bit more. Like you said right now, you know, I mean, I think he's got like a one to uh, three assist to turnover ratio, which is really tough. Um, but I think that you he's a guy offensively that you cannot give up on um, because at the high school level and obviously, you know, he's a touted recruit. He's done some really good things offensively. Um, and so I think that you've got to, you know, is he the primary guy you're playing through? No, that's not, you know, what we're saying here. But you've got to get him involved and let him mess up a little bit because, in a way, this is year one for him, right? Like, he didn't, he didn't play a ton at, at Duke. Um, he, he played a little bit, but it was a COVID year and all that stuff. So let him mess up a little bit, especially in non-conference and see what he can do for you. And then 
maybe there's some stuff mid range around the goal that you like with him. Maybe there are some quick hitters. You can start running for a guy like uh Brickfield. Kermit sort of finagled the lineup a little bit. I mean, it seems like the three constants are going to be Joyner, Luis and Brooks. And mm-hmm. it seems like he's kind of tweaked with the, the two and the four spot a little bit. And I don't know if there's any correlation here, but do you think that's him tweaking it to try to find some, some offense and some scoring and not even necessarily just at those two spots per se, but just what combination works with the other three out on the floor. Cause to me right now, there seems to be three constants and he's trying to work his way and figure out what those other two are, which are two pretty important positions. Um, yeah. Crowley hasn't been terrible by any stretch. He's actually distributing the ball. Well, you're just not getting a ton from him offensively. Do you think there's anything to that? And how do you think that ends up shaking out? Well, he, um, he got off pretty hot to start the season off and it's cooled down a little bit. Um, but I mean, he's averaging 80 game right now and his assist to turnover ratio is, is ridiculous right now. I think he's got a three to one on his end. So, you know, with him, I just don't – I'm still not a believer yet that, you know, he's a guy that needs to be like a primary offensive option. Um, a, a bright spot in my opinion, though, and I think I probably on the defensive end was expecting a little bit more out of him, but Ty Fagan's having a pretty good year so far. And um, the thing that has surprised me positively with him is he's shooting pretty well, especially from the perimeter. Um, he's going and getting some boards as well, which I think we all expected. But he's he's been a pretty efficient player on the offensive end of the floor. So I've, I've kind of been wondering, um, you know, is, is he a guy as well that could see a, a minutes jump? Well, he it kind of – part of it already happened to some degree because that was something you and I were texting about during the uh, that loss they had at Marquette where – this clearly was not by design, but I mean, you want to talk about broken offense guy, their best offense towards the end of that game was a couple of times where he just drove it to the rim. I think he got a layup. He may have gotten fouled on one and then he made a pretty nice dump pass to someone down there on the other block. And he gets, so he, but then at the end of the night, I was looking through just the box score and I texted, you know, I was like, how the hell did he only play 10 minutes in this game? Cause he, you know, he scored eight, points somewhere in there yeah he was at eight and some points pretty big buckets too yes there were like six of those points came in i think in the last like seven minutes of the game it was like how the world he get eight like how do you only play eight minutes well then he plays 28 against elon 30 against boise state yeah. one of those games i think was a start maybe he started against valley i can't remember but he did not play very well against elon uh i, I say that he turned it over a few times, but he did have six rebounds and six assists. Or excuse me, Boise was the rough one. Sorry. And I think that may have been when he got the start. I can't remember. But you've already seen that Bennett jump a little bit. He's dipped yeah. down the last two games in the you know 18 to 22 range. You got to remember that's Valley and Ryder. But two real opponents they played since that Marquette game, he's playing right at 30 minutes a game. I don't see that trend stopping anytime soon because he offers them a lot. I wonder what like his ceiling is for what he can offer them offensively, but he does a lot of good things. And I don't even really know how to articulate that. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I think he's, he's probably close to his ceiling um, offensively. Like I, I don't see him being a guy that is gets in the teens from a scoring standpoint, but if he can go and, you know, make some easy buckets around the rim and then continue to just be a solid, um, you know, perimeter shooter, like he's been, I mean, that, that could be pretty big for this team going forward. 
So they play Memphis this Saturday. Look, yeah. the Boise State loss wasn't great. And if you're an anti-college basketball guy, you should put that shit on a poster. It was tough to watch at times. But that's really the only kind of head scratcher where you're like, damn, that didn't look great. Like, should they could should have, could have, would have? Could they close the game out against Marquette? Sure. I don't know what Marquette is. They're probably an NIT team. I haven't actually looked up what they've done since. But they weren't awful by any stretch. They had those two kids that could score and then, like, some mid-major-ish talent around them. They seem fine. So yeah, but- there hasn't been anything head to overly head scratching yet, but again, it hasn't looked great at times. Defensively, they've been fine. I mean, you give up 60, 58, 51 or something oh, yeah. in the last three games. They've been good. good defensively. They can figure yeah. this offensive thing out. They could be okay. Give me kind of the, the lowdown on Memphis. Uh, that's a team that's come into Oxford. That, that will not be their first test by any means. No doubt, no doubt. And, I mean, super talented team. Um, you know, you've, they've got some pros on their team as well. Like I stated earlier, um, you know, another t- this, this is a team where it's an interesting matchup, really, really good um, in transition. They and, and this has been their identity since Penny got there, as much as people want to knock on them, been pretty damn good defensively as well. One thing that's interesting about them, though, is um, – they turn the ball over like crazy. And so what I think that um, what I think that Ole Miss needs to do is in the half court, you got to get stops like we have been all year, but you need to lean on the half court D to get you stops in the one, three, one to force turnovers. Um, they need to get some extra possessions with how they've been playing, you know, how tough uh, offense has been, especially in the half court this year for Ole Miss they need those extra possessions. And it's really an interesting thing. These are games where, like, when we play the Auburns of the world with Bruce Pearls and, you know, teams like that, the one 3 is always so interesting to me. Um, Bruce has always struggled against it, uh, against Ole Miss. But the one 3 for this group and a lot of coaches that, that use it at a high rate like we do, there's a few different ways that you kind of use it. So – a lot of coaches will use it after you've gotten scored on maybe like three times in a row to switch things up. You'll see coaches um, go to it on ATOs, like after timeouts and after free throws. Um, but the, the other way you do it is off of personnel. And Memphis is a really interesting team because they're talented and really long and physical outside of Tyler Harris and Alex Lomax. Um, those are probably names that people that have kept up with Ole Miss basketball are, are familiar with. And what I'm interested to see is when you play small guards, coaches a lot of times like running that one three one. It's kind of hard to throw over. Um, Harris and Lomax don't really ever play much at the same time together. But I wonder if there will be some personnel one three one to try to force some turnovers. Um, when you have a Harris or a Lomax in. Um, so that's that's another thing that I, I'm very interested to see because if Ole Miss can get some extra possessions off some turnovers, Memphis likes to turn it over. Um, that that could be something that could give you a spark, especially at home, uh, getting the crowd in it and getting some momentum. They've been pretty active, too, on the perimeter and getting steals. They've disrupted a lot of Mar- what Marquette was trying to do for some stretches of that game. So it'll be an interesting matchup. You know, I you know, if you made me pick, I'd probably say Memphis wins this game, but yeah. this would be the kind of win that, you know, for a guys with a bunch of new pieces that 
you know, it's been a little bit of a struggle over the last five games. It's weird to say when you're only seven games in the season, but from Charleston on, it hasn't looked great. That's like for just from a sheer confidence standpoint, if they're able to pull this off, that's probably one you could point back to in January or February and be like, okay, we kind of figured out something about ourselves in this one. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, it's a tough thing that you and I've talked about right now is we've missed out on some non-con opportunities so far. The non-conference strength of schedule is not phenomenal compared to the rest of the SEC. And we know how brutal the league is this year. Um, so it, it, one thing that really is hurting this group right now is Dayton's terrible this year. And when you schedule a Dayton, I mean, that's normally, you know, a top 50, top 75 net team um, at worst. Dayton's really bad this year. But, um, yeah, for this group, I mean, this would be a, a huge win. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of tough things. Memphis is super talented. Another thing they do really well, Memphis, this year is um, they're a pretty good rebounding team and a great offensive rebounding team. Jalen Duran, I mean, he, he's a grown-ass man, and he crashes the boards really hard. So a huge key for Ole Miss this game is – We've got to be physical, and we cannot allow for second-chance opportunities uh, when we play Memphis because, like we said, they're going to they're gonna turn the ball over, but we got to make sure that we, that we limit to um, one chance for possessions. That game, Kermit, year two, two years ago in the forum, was a fantastic college basketball game. Um, good environment. That was just a fun one to go to. I was there that day. Uh, two teams that played really well that year didn't end up turning out great for Ole Miss. Believe that was Brian senior year. Yeah. And it just didn't go great, but it's a huge opportunity. Let's uh, before we get out of here though, let's uh, we did have the national signing day pass. I think that was like the day after two days after we recorded our first podcast and shocker uh, in the show notes. I forgot to uh, put that one in there. What uh, kind of give me the lowdown on what they have coming in at least so far. Yeah, absolutely. So Ole Miss kind of early in the year, um, you know, kind of went after some whales, so to speak, and especially at the big spot, um, went after some guys. And, you know, everybody knows about the Jalen Reed situation. That's 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 really tough. Um, it's a tough bill to swallow. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, happens but times and times. But they got some guys this year, uh, Malik Ewan. So he's kind of a project big, um, in my opinion. Um, and. For him, I don't think that he's a guy that can come in and, like, start at the SEC level year one. But he's, he's got a pretty good ceiling, um, does some good things offensively. I think Kermit could challenge him defensively as well. Um, TJ Caldwell is probably one of, if not the best, uh, athletes that um, Kermit signed so far. Really good kid if you're into watching things like hoop highlights and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he he has some pretty fantastic plays. Very, very explosive kid. Um, and then Robert Coward as well. Um, he is a guy we obviously know that Ole Miss, um, you know, needs some perimeter shooters. And Robert Coward's a guy that, you know, they, they believe um, could be a really, really good shooter for them down the road as well. So finished with those guys. Look, I mean, just like we're seeing with Lane right now, um, you know, the transfer thing is, is crazy and it's changing both the college football and college basketball world. I'm interested to see at some point down the road how this affects, you know, if it affects baseball any. I think it'll take a lot longer than it has for basketball and football. But, um, you know, they're going to hit the portal hard and probably get three to four guys. I saw where 
um, you know, Nick Crass a couple of weeks ago, I think right before the season started, um, you know, they, they kind of let that one go a little bit too, which I think is a good call. He, he's probably going to project as more of like a low major player. Um, so all in all, you know, they, they, they filled some things that they wanted to, I think they missed on some whales as well, but, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of how it goes at times. One of the things that's fascinating from a, and one of the things I omitted when we were uh, talking about like what they've done so far this year and what they can like rectify it is they, is Deshaun Ruffin being out. Yeah. I, I'm not a math guy, but he gets hurt the first game. I think I saw like three, four weeks. He should come back soon. I don't think he'll play Saturday or anything like that, but you know, I haven't actually looked into it uh, as well. Um, but oh, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. The, the, one of the things that's interesting to me is AK for all of his flaws and I know it didn't end great, but man, he put together a fantastic run on Miss basketball. That man always had a bucket getter. And Kermit hasn't been able to recruit one yet. I mean, the one he yeah. had when he went to the tournament with Terrence Davis and Bree and Tyree. And then it was Bree and Tyree. And then it was a struggle. And now it's a struggle so far this year. What do you attribute that to? I know he's been a guy that's always kind of been front court oriented, a yeah. very good defensive coach. He, he's clearly not dumb. Kermit Davis is a smart guy. No, forgotten more basketball than I will ever know. It's clearly not lost on him. Do you think he's like proactively trying to fix that? Do you think Joiner was a gamble? How do you see that playing out in the next recruiting cycle or two? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, and, and they've, they've tried to go get some guys, especially in the portal. Um, I think that, you know, one thing that Kermit's done is recruit length. And like you said, I think forwards is a good way to put it. It's a very elementary way to put like, hey, they've recruited a lot more forwards than guards than you see most teams do in today's day and age. Where that's had a positive impact for Ole Miss is half-court offense, both in the man and the one-three-one. Um, but negatively speaking, it's, you know, sometimes if you kind of recruit too, too many forwards, you don't have that guy on the perimeter who can go straight line drive, beat somebody off the dribble, ISO, whatever the case may be. Um, so it's kind of a it, it's a it's a bittersweet thing at times um, there from a personnel standpoint. Do you like this is a terrible question because I know we're we're so far off from even just like the next cycle. But how does he fix that? Like, does he go find a transfer or how? Do, like the. I wonder if like this season as it's going on or whenever you start back channeling for the transfer market and transfer portal is like, this would have to be evidence if it goes the same way as last year, where he'd have to be like, look, we have to go find a guy that can get his 18 a game and create a shot in the last four minutes. Like, do you think it's as simple as that? Like if you were in his shoes, how would you approach that? Well, two things. First off, I think Ruffin's a bucket getter. Um, so you I, think I, they're I, missing him this year a lot. That's probably the other part I should have asked. I, 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 yeah, I think they're missing him a, a pretty decent bit. Um, you know, there were times like a year ago when you heard day one that he came to campus that he he would be the guy at, at point. Um, and then he kind of got hurt and you didn't hear that as much. And I'm not talking about the one a couple weeks ago, but when he kind of got hurt in preseason. Um, but, but I mean, he he is he's a really, really talented player. The second piece of this, though, is, hey, is is that the fix? Yeah, going I, – I don't think the three guys they've signed so far, anybody like day one can go be that guy for you. Um, but I think that you go in the portal and give it your best shot. The issue is there's 350-plus other teams that may want that guy too. Um, so it, it's getting that guy to campus. And 
you know, I think for Kermit, it's important that, that if he has a guy like that, it, it's not somebody that's going to be a huge defensive liability on the court, but at the same time, you know, to counteract that in the one, three, one, the beautiful thing of it is you can at times hide people um, in, in that defense as well. Which is something we talked about after the first game, because again, it wasn't a sweeping assumption off the first game, but he is a smaller guy. And I just wonder if he'll get hunted defensively, particularly if you're in man-to-man situations when you get into conference play and, you know, Ole Miss is not going to have, you know, superior talent more often than not on the court most nights. That's fascinating, though, because you did. When he was recruited, you're like, this kid's a bucket getter. And it's like, all right, well, what does that mean as a freshman in the SEC? I don't think that's even close to the jump that you would have playing, you know, name your position outside a kicker in the SEC in football. But, you know, we mentioned the joiner spot-up numbers. If you can have rough and beat, come back, be healthy, not turn the basketball over and be the point guard, that seems like a really optimal scenario for Ole Miss if you can get Joyner off the ball. Do you see that being a fit at all if Ruffin is able to kind of man the ship at point guard as a true freshman? Yeah, well, I mean, I think an interesting point there is, um, first off, you've seen a lot of times that Kermit likes putting his his scorer on the wing. So you saw, hey, year one moves Brian over to the wing. Moved uh, last year, a lot of times you see Jarkel bring the ball up the floor move Schuler over to the wing. Um, and, you know, they're doing a little bit of that right now. For Ruffin, where he could really help is um, – and I don't think he's – he, this is not – you know, I don't think he's, this is something he's perfect at right now, but his, his ball handling skills are good enough to where he could be a huge asset to this team if he could go create, right? If he could go beat people off the dribble um, and create for some guys for some perimeter shots and not – be the guy that absolutely has to take every shot. Um, but he's also a guy that, you know, I think would make them better in ISO situations. And we talk about quick hitters. I mean, I'm running flat ball screens at the top for Ruffin until he proves me wrong because he's so quick. His handles are so good. Go see what he can do um, and, and make happen and then evolve and adjust from there. It's going to be a fascinating one on Saturday. Before we get out of here, you will do some stories throughout the year. Um, You know, you did the first podcast that triggered a great debate about the morality of private schools in the state of Mississippi, in which I linked the, uh, the infamous hoop story. We could probably get to that later. And they actually got a text from a, uh, an old pal of mine who still runs a sports website was wondering if a mockumentary was a possibility. So that's what we in the biz call a tease about that night. You have a nice stepdad story. I'll just give you the floor. What's up? Yeah, so um, this story, we were recruiting a kid, um, and this story actually comes from uh, uh, another staff that we were recruiting against the kid. So this staff was a mid-major staff. Um, they had an official visit with this kid, and I'm, I won't give away the details of the kid, but he, he, he was a transfer, and so they were mid-major staff. At the time, we were the only high-major team uh, that had interest in him. Maybe, maybe that's why we all ended up getting fired. But anyway, he was on a visit and at this mid-major school, and on your official – you get to take the kids, you know, out to eat. So normally you take them to the nicest uh, restaurant in town and the restaurant the staff took them to was kind of like, if anybody's familiar with like Jeff Ruby's, it's kind of like a Jeff Ruby's where you have a steakhouse, but also it's got a like cigar bar inside of it as well. And so 
um, they were telling us the visit was going pretty well. They were at dinner about 45 minutes into dinner and the stepdad uh, disappears. And so um, the staff was trying to find the stepdad. He disappeared from the table. They thought he was in the bathroom, whatever the case may be. And 15 minutes go by and the waiter comes up to the table and is like, Hey, you know, John Doe um, is in, is in the cigar bar. Y'all need to come get him. And, <laughs> and they were like, Oh goodness. They walk in the cigar bar. The stepdad has his shoes off, kicked up on the table, smoking dope in the cigar bar. Oh, at the, <laughs> at this like, five-star restaurant. You're not a stogie. They, nobody knows where he got it from, but he was smoking some dope inside the cigar bar uh, at like a Jeff Ruby's type restaurant um, on his official visit. So I'm not sure I've ever heard of that move before because that's clearly something – I'm, I'm not a big cigar bar guy. I've never been in one of those. But I'm guessing they don't just have those on deck in the back, and I'm guessing that sucker looked a little skinnier than your typical cigar. That sounds like he might have brought his own lunch uh, into that place and just decided, to, you know – Hell, everyone's smoking. I just brought this from my house. What's up? Yeah. BYOD. Yeah. So what do you do at that point? Do you, I mean, you obviously trying to get the kid, you can't be like, Hey man, like put that shit out. You're probably off. So not like, Hey, pass that here. How did, what, what's the next move? You get it, put his shoes on. What's up? What, what happens next? Yeah. I, I think they, uh, I think they were able to talk him down and uh, get him out of the restaurant. They did not end up getting the kid. Um, somebody else can end up getting him the kid the reason they told us the reason they told us the story though is he had an official with us the next week and they were like hey just heads up you know oxford grill house the stepdad is uh he's kind of a liability so just a heads up here yeah don't take him to anywhere where you can go six inside i don't even think those places exist in oxford but that's nice of that staff that's good to see the camaraderie and the ever clean sport that is college basketball recruiting um, your dad and I were actually talking about that the other day where it's like, look, you think all this football coaching carousel stuff and the recruiting part of that is insane. Like college <laughs> basketball is just out of this world. So good stuff. Oh, that's that's going to be hard to top as the year goes on. Um, I actually hope I now run into someone in my life that just lights up, a, lights up a nice little bleasy in the cigar bar and be like, no, sir, this is not Cuban. Um, appreciate the time as always, dude, that was good stuff. We will, uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon as we're, uh, Shit, we're only three weeks away from conference play. How about that? Yep, it's wild. It'll be here before we know it. All right, take care, dude. We'll hire you soon. So, yeah. All right, that was Bracken Ray. Really appreciate his insight as always. We'll be checking in with him throughout the season. Get on a little more regular schedule as conference play approaches. As, uh, the Rebels have a big one tomorrow. I believe that's an 11, 11 or 11.30 a.m. game some, uh, on Saturday. I can't remember which one, but early game, so be sure to check that out. Before we get to Antonio Morales, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Manscaped. That's right, Manscaped. They're the industry leader in men's grooming. They author precision tools for your jewels. You need to join the over 2 million men that trust Manscaped. Their lawnmower 4.0 model right now. Nice little LED light on that thing. Portable charger, different rail guards. It is the absolute best tool to ensure you are nice and kept down there. Heard the 70s were a wild time. Manscaped is here to make sure that that was a thing of the past. You need to check them out, make sure everything's under control down there. They're the ultimate leader in men's grooming. They've got, you know, beard stuff as well. I've been working on the same beard since 1995, so that's not a concern for me. But maybe out there want to trim your beard. They've got all kinds of trimmers and stuff. Check them out, manscaped.com. Use the promo code MPW, and you get 20% off any purchase. Here is Antonio Morales on Lincoln Riley and USC.
All right, we now welcome on good friend Antonio Morales, uh, I guess my West Coast correspondent to this podcast. Uh, although you, he cut the hair, he had a hair flowing for a while. Now he's back all clean, uh, clean shaven up there. Join us to talk some Lincoln Rally. How are you, my friend? Long time no talk to. It's good to see you. Kind of. I know, I know, man. It's been a while. You're you're in Dallas now, and you're not getting tortured by Mike Bianco every day. So I mean, it's, it's been a while. I know it was almost fitting. The first uh, first sporting event I came went to out of COVID was, you know, they just kind of gave up on COVID out here after a while. <laughs> and so that that Texas Rangers Park had that pre, uh, like college baseball showcase. And so mm-hmm. we all a couple of us went. And I was like, this is just kind of fitting the first sporting event I'm going to. Mike Bianco is, you know, a couple rows down at a safe distance. I don't think he could have <laughs> climbed over the railing and gotten after me. But uh, just kind of perfect. You uh, you're. Going from one interim guy, you went from one interim guy in Matt Luke to another interim guy in Clay Helton, and now that's no more. You are getting the cover, for the lack of a better phrase, an exciting brand of football for the first time in some time. You got to be fired up just from a story perspective. Yeah, it's just different to get used to. I, I want to say Freeze was extremely like high profile, but like he's somebody you had to pay attention to, right? Kind of, like all, all the time, like. You'd, you'd wake up in the morning and check your phone and be like, what did he tweet this morning? Like, <laughs> like, what was he doing? And, and he, he would do some national stuff from like time to time and covering Clay Helton and, and Matt Luke for the past four or five seasons. And it's just been like, you know, those guys are going to be like, you know, the national media darlings, like the national media is not going to want to talk to them a bunch. It's just not their personality. And then, all of a sudden you cover Lincoln Riley and you have to like watch all these national interviews that he does like on Scott Van Pelt or Cowherd and stuff. And you're like, Oh man, like you're, you're dealing with a much more high profile uh, coach now at this place. And it's a, it's a, it takes a little bit to get used to. I think it's exciting for college football as well, to be honest, because we never know, like none of these things are sure things, right? Everyone gets caught up Mm -hmm. in the money and like you're paying all these guys this, you know, asinine amount of money that's approaching nine figures over a decade or less now. And it's never a sure thing, but part of it is selling intrigue and interest and kind of hope in some ways. And I think USC was the poster child of that. Like it, I mean, yes, it was the results and the recruiting at the end with Helton, but I don't think he was fully accepted from the start. But let's start out how this happened, because I think this was kind of the coup of the offseason, because, mm-hmm. you know, you kept hearing Lincoln to LSU, no, he's staying, why would he do that, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, at like the 11th hour, it was like, USC. How did this happen? That's what you know, everybody has been wondering throughout the week. Uh, we we talked to a lot of SC people on Monday. They, they had Lincoln Riley's intro presser, and then some of the administrators kind of um, st- uh, they had their availability as well. And we talked to their number two, uh, Brandon Sosna, who Mike Bone, USC's athletic director, he described Brandon as the architect of the surge. Brandon's this 29-year-old who's um, uh, like an up-and-comer in the industry. And he used to work with the Browns. And um, he helped Mike Bone when they hired Luke Fickle at Cincinnati and, and we talked to him for about 20 minutes on Monday after Lincoln's presser. And, you know, I asked him, I was like, well, what happens or what does this search look like if Oklahoma wins on Saturday? And he goes, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, he was like, we might be in a completely different spot right now. So uh, he was like, that's, he was like, these things get decided on the margins and um, him and Mike Bone were, 
or watching that Oklahoma Oklahoma State game from the suites of the Coliseum on Saturday night while USC was playing BYU, and they're hoping for Oklahoma State to to win. And then uh, that night they went back to the office and they worked through the night, and they were able to talk to Lincoln over Zoom on Sunday. And I know everybody's kind of disputing this twelve-hour like narrative that's come out over like over the past couple of days where, you know, Lincoln Riley didn't hear from USC or anything until Saturday, like late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. And like this thing all changed within 12 hours. Um, I, I get why people are skeptical because we all know these things work through back channels and, you know, unfold and develop over weeks. But I mean, nobody knew about Lincoln and, and USC. I mean, it was all this LSU talk. Maybe they were using that to kind of uh, defla- uh, to get people looking the other way, um, but you know nobody kind of knows. We we've only got the public story of this twelve-hour time window where this all unfolded, um, but it'll be interesting to find out what the real story is like someday. Yeah, right. Because this is all still new, and that's kind of how these things go. Like you kind of figure mm-hmm. out how this happens after the fact. I mean, how the <laughs> I guess the Ross Bjork, Dave Doran, you know, Chancellor Gumballs thing was slightly different, but even that took like a couple of days to be like, okay, what exactly, what the hell happened here? And you had more time to follow it. Like that one was a little slower developing, but that's interesting. You said that. Cause that's where I wanted to go next was, you know, everyone was skeptical of this thing actually happened. Like you mentioned at the very last minute and it changing in 12 hours. And I do a Sunday show with a guy that worked for uh Luke and recruiting and worked for a year at Kiffin. And he was just, this was just us two bullshitting on a podcast. He was just kind of like, look, like, you know, I read something today where Lincoln Raleigh had been emphasizing Southern California recruiting for a while. And we were honestly just kind of putting our tinfoil hats on. (laughs) I kind of fell somewhere in the middle upon that. Like, obviously this entire thing did not happen in 12 hours or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I do think there's some truth to it, to what you're talking about, because when you ask a guy a question like that, particularly kind of talking to him on the side after a press conference and you're like, Hey, you know, if they don't lose in Bedlam on Saturday night, are you and him admitting, like, I have no idea where it'd be to be completely honest. There's got to be some truth into that. And as you mentioned, this is back channeling, right? This is how this stuff Mm -hmm. works, but there's a difference between the back channeling conversations, whether it's through representation or guys just calling each other and kind of, you know, hashing out hypotheticals to it actually being real and saying, Hey, do you want to do this? And I do think there is probably a good bit of truth of Lincoln coming off the field after losing to Oklahoma state. Um, I'm sure the whole sec thing was on his mind about going to the sec and looking around of what he was equipped with to do that. I, I actually kind of buy into the idea that, yeah, it may not have completely started and finished in 12 hours, but that, combination of that loss the season ending all of those thoughts you have naturally at the end of a season like that really expediting the process and getting him to think seriously and then I won't call it a rash rash decision but making a quick one like do you tend to buy into some of that as well I, I think from the USC side I think it was something to where like okay this is a shot we're gonna take and see if it goes and if if it doesn't, we're going to move on to the next guy. I think they were supposed to talk with Matt Campbell. I think they had that kind of stuff set up, you know, to, to potentially meet with him. And then I, they got the interest from Lincoln. And I think that's kind of how it unfolded. And obviously, you know, the Pac-12 is, is, isn't the strongest conference. It's, 
you know, pretty weak aside from Oregon, Utah, and some of those schools. UCLA hasn't stepped up under Chip Kelly. Arizona State was supposed to be their year this year under Herm, but they've never really kind of broken through that eight-win ceiling. So, you know, there's it, it's wide open pretty much. And I think Lincoln saw that. And, you know, you have the chance to be the top dog in a conference. And it's a clear path path to the playoff if he does it right. And I just think that opportunity was something that was intriguing to him. And it's just a much easier path than Oklahoma and the SEC. Yeah, it really is, particularly with – I mean, I do think there's going to be an adjustment period for both Oklahoma and Texas. I mean, the simplest form, you look at Oklahoma's roster, they don't have the offensive and defensive line depth Mm -hmm. or high-end talent to, like, kind of be ready to compete immediately in the SEC. And I think it was probably a shrewd decision by him. And it just kind of goes to show you the value in, you know, just shooting your shot. I mean, like, at a certain point, it sounds so stupid, but, like, what's the worst you're going to do? The guy says no, and then you kind of continue courting Matt Campbell. And I think that probably goes all the way up to the top. I know you mentioned the, you know, up-and-comer, 29, kind of the architect of the search. But Mike Mm -hmm. Bone's got a pretty good track record, at least in his recent history as an AD. You mentioned he got fickle to Cincinnati. Like, I was – the very short time I lived in Cincinnati, I talked to a lot of UC people just from – whether it was media types or just kind of going and sitting at the neighborhood bar. And Mm -hmm. like, he was kind of the guy in charge. Like there was, it was not a clown show and it, you know, there's a million different reasons to hate ADs and he seemed to have some pretty unilateral support there. How instrumental do you think Mike bone was not even just in like actually orchestrating the search, but just kind of having his competent leadership over the last year and a half and two and a half years, because I imagine if it were Pat Hayden or someone else, this might've turned out differently and you might have the same old USC. Yeah, definitely. I just think having a real AD has helped tremendously for, for USC. I mean, they're able to keep this under wraps until pretty much it was done on Sunday morning or it was nearing, nearing uh, to be finalized on Sunday morning. And the old USC would have, you know, not conducted a real search. Probably they just probably would have hired some former USC assistant or something um, along those lines. Uh, But I I think this was a big win for Mike Bone just because he didn't fire Clay Helton in November, 2019. And he started three weeks before the end of the season that year. And everybody thought, oh, he's going to fire Clay Helton. I was like, oh, that's, that's a pretty quick timeline to fire your coach um, three weeks after you get hired. And he didn't do it, and he pissed off a ton of USC fans. I remember when when he tweeted that day that Clay Helton was being retained. I think he had, like, almost, like, a thousand comments, you know, towards that one tweet or something, just bashing him for <laughs> for not for not firing Clay Helton. So, so everyone kind of questioned, not everyone, but, like, a large segment of USC's fan base kind of questioned his commitment to winning uh, for two years because he didn't fire Clay Helton after the 2020 season, even though Clay won the Pac-12 South last year and there was a pandemic and he was bringing in a top 10 recruiting class. People still wanted Clay fired and and Mike didn't do it then either. Um, So people were pretty pissed at him for two years. And I think a lot of people were doubting him. Um, A lot of the fan base was doubting him and, Till he made this hire. And now I think he has everybody 
in full support of him. And you don't see as many of the doubters as you did uh, the past couple of years. And I just think have, being a real AD and just not being part of the USC family has kind of led to that hiring and led to his approval rating now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you went to the health and part of it back to 2019 because, I mean, hell, for the first like year and a half, two years you were out there, I felt like every time I would text you about just like football stuff, it was like, how is this guy still around? Like he's almost, I think we compare him to Bianco. It's like this guy's like, you know, you can't get rid of him. Like he's yeah. Bianco's going to be around in 2100. Um, and so I like when you go back to 2019, when you put it that way, I didn't even know the time frame was so quick. I knew he was a new AD. I didn't realize three weeks after he got the job, the season ended and all that. That might be somewhat of a lesson for the whole Lane Kiffin, Manny Diaz, Miami situation. Yeah. Situate not identical, but like the idea that you're just going to hire an AD, going to can the guy immediately and get rolling is not realistic because AD transitions are a hell of a lot slower developing than head coaching transitions, just kind of the nature of the position. When you go back to, to kind of around that time, that moment, to put it in context, UFC was coming off a five and seven season in 18. They go eight and five in 19, mm -hmm. seven and two in the Pac-12. They lost in the Holiday Bowl. I imagine apathy's at its peak at this point for a guy that they never seem to fully accept. Yeah. Was there anything else you think that went into not choosing to choosing to retain him other than the fact that he was so new and he was trying to get his bearings. Like, take me through that three, four-week period and how he lasted so long. Um, so Mike Bone takes over, I think, November 11th, 2019. The season ends November 23rd against UCLA. I think there's an 11-day wait in between the end of the season and when they announced Clay was returning. And... Uh, one of those weeks was the Pac-12 is dumb and they don't know how to schedule. So they, they, they had USC play 12 consecutive games as like with no bye week. So their bye week was week 13. And, uh, and they had to wait to, to watch Utah play. If, if Utah lost to Colorado that week, then USC would make the Pac-12 title game. Uh, Utah won, so USC didn't make it. And then the next four days were basically spent over is Clay coming back or not. There was a there's a false report that came out about Clay getting fired, and uh, that caused all this commotion. And Clay was on an in-home visit, and like this report came out that was false that he was getting fired. Um, and uh, I remember later, that was that a fringe outlet or was that someone that was in the I couldn't remember who that was, but I remember it was uh, the SI Maven. Yes, so all, you need, all that needs to be said there, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, three days later, they announced Clay was coming back and they were going to give him more resources and all this stuff. But I think one of the main hurdles in, in firing him was he got an extension from Lynn Swan in, in 2018, in February 2018, that guaranteed his contract until through the 2023 season. So Clay's still going to make money off of USC these next two years. And at the end of the 2019 season, his buyout would have been about $20 million. And that's not including like buying out the new coach and, uh, and paying off all the assistants and getting new assistants and paying for those guys. Um, and the administration just didn't think the resources were there at that time. USC's uh, pretty, it was pretty slow to adjust to the rest of college football when it came to support staffers and, uh, analysts and things like that. Clay Helton didn't have a lot of those. 
So I think the buyout was honestly the biggest obstacle for them to overcome and one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, why they didn't do it. And then I think they wanted to give Clay more resources, not only to help him, but kind of set the job up better for the future when it, when it did open. Um, and obviously now they've kind of sold Lincoln on that investment and, um, you know, going basically all in on trying to win. Was there any scenario where he was going to survive this year? I didn't think so. Just because his recruiting had gone in the tank for that one year, well, for two years kind of, but in the tank, meaning by USC standards, like one year they finished 20th and then one year they finished really, really bad. They finished like 64th. Yeah, it's exactly um, what it was. <laughs> so you, you knew at some point those two years of recruiting were going to catch up to him. And like they were starting like a 275 pound nose tackle this year. And you're like, dude, this is not going to work. And like <laughs> their, their offensive line was just really green, really inexperienced. And the veterans that they had that were starting weren't that impressive. And there's not a lot of athletes on defense. And I remember in training camp, I was like, wow, like this team's ranked in like the top 15 to start this season. And I was like, I'm not seeing a top 15 team here. It was like purely off brand name and uh usc gets that bump a lot of the times i was i was like this is definitely not a top 15 team um and so you knew those recruiting misses were gonna catch up to him eventually and and you knew he was gonna lose some game he shouldn't lose and that was kind of like a staple of his teams i remember 2019 they lost a weird road game to byu um in 2020 they honestly should have beaten oregon but for some reason they came out like flat in the Pac-12 title game at home, um, which was strange to see. And then they came out sluggish against San Jose state. And I was like, Oh man, this is not going to last. And then they got drilled by Stanford at home. And I didn't know if they were going to can clay then, but I knew that it was over and there was no bouncing back. And then two days later they fired him. And the, somewhat the irony in all of that is, so he goes five and four is his interim year when he takes over for Sark and they finish tie for first in the Pac-12 South. But then he goes 10 and three with the Rose Bowl deal, 11 and three the next year to lose the Cotton Bowl. But then like the five and seven, but like during that time, I imagine like some of that is he's probably surviving on selling the recruiting aspect of it because during that time he had some pretty good classes. Like it, you can follow a path to where this thing went terribly for him. And like yeah. the, almost the recruiting fo- like follows like is a much straighter path from A to B to hiring to firing than the record itself. Weirdly, yeah. But there was a lot of misses in like that 2016 and 2017 class that ended up biting them, and even the the, 27, the 2018 class, which was like number four in the country. And I remember when I when I started on the beat, I was like, well, this 2018 class is like the one they're building around, and if they're gonna make a push for the playoff or something it's going to be in 2020 with this, when this class is juniors, they have JT Daniels, Amon Ross St. Brown, um, and a couple other five stars in there. So that, that, I thought that was the class they're going to build around, but that class, uh, JT got hurt and he wasn't that great as a freshman and ended up transferring out. One of their best linebackers in that class ended up transferring into Ohio state and he's not really playing well over there either. Um, I think they, I think Clay signed nine five stars in his time at USC and, I think only one has been drafted so far. So it's just been a mess. <laughs> just lack of development and bad coaching and lazy recruiting. 
uh, by the assistant coaches and it just wasn't a good combination. And it's ultimately what led to his downfall. I was actually, before we, I got home and we started recording, listening to Matt Leinert on Ryan Rosillo's podcast. And he was talking mm-hmm. about the, the lazy recruiting, particularly toward the end, because he's talking about how, you know, Pete would get kids right in the Los Angeles area. And then for lack of mm-hmm. a better phrase, put up basically a fence around the state of California, quite a large state there. But then, you know, if he's going out of state, he was going to make sure that kid was going to be a high NFL draft pick and a kid that could contribute immediately. You mentioned the lazy recruiting at the end. Leinert's like a, I mean, mascot's a little demeaning, but like he's a former player. He's in the media. He's yeah. very close to the program. It sounds like he sits in an advisory role. Like he's involved. That's probably the best way to put it. And he was saying toward the end, like, you know, he has to stay not positive or whatever because he's in the kind of the media sphere, but he's like, it became easier to talk more candidly about it once you heard what was going on behind the scenes. It sounded like you just had a staff that didn't really want to recruit, which is kind of bizarre considering how far or how little you have to travel, I should say. Yeah, exactly. They had Clancy Pendergast as a defense coordinator who was an NFL guy. I don't think he just enjoyed recruiting very much. And like the, the story I wrote after Clay got fired was about like a, a lack of accountability. And that was not only the players, it was the coaches too. And like the lead anecdote I had in that story was I, I remember hearing, I remember I heard like Clancy didn't like to recruit. I, then I went to a recruiting camp in like June 2019 and uh, at the end of the camp, Clay like grabs the microphone and he tells all these kids like, hey, these assistant coaches are going to hang around for like 20, 25 minutes and they're going to be there to talk to you, like whatever you guys want to talk about. And this was like one of their big camps too. Like I think they call it the elite camp out here where it's kind of like an invite camp for, you know, the best kids they want to recruit. And Clancy like stayed there for like five minutes and like walked back to the football offices and it was like dude what are you doing right now and like god um yeah and so like some of the other assistants just got like really desperate in just taking bodies just to take bodies and so um they ended up with guys that aren't gonna contribute ever like on the field and it's why this defense is like arguably the worst in program history right now um, at USC and it was it was ironic because Johnny Nansen and Clancy Prendergast two of the defensive coaches at that time are at UCLA now uh, Clancy's a analyst and Johnny Nansen's you know he was at UCLA he just got the Arizona DC job but he was a defensive line coach this past year and uh, you know UCLA killed USC this past week or uh, two weeks ago and dropped 62 points on them and the reason why is because those two guys made so many mistakes in the recruiting process towards, towards the end. And, and that ultimately was a big contributor to why Clay lost his job. That is actually pretty thick with irony. I didn't know that. That's funny. So the, it's kind of fitting though. You mentioned the USC family part of it and the USC of old and this hire not being the USC of old. We'd always joke sometimes like, would be like, you know, there's more parallels to this whole old Miss deal in USC deal than you think, right? The interim that yeah. no one was ever actually sold on, kind of the we are old Miss good old boy network kind of made that one happen. You mentioned the USC of old making the, you know, not having a real search, kind of hiring like, a former assistant, all that. That's kind of what Clay Helton was. He had never been a head coach for. He's not from that area. I believe he's from like Florida or something, played at Auburn mm-hmm. and Houston. And so now you go get a national pro, you pick another coach from a blue blood program, from like to me, none of these are sure things, but man, like he's going to keep a couple of those quarterbacks or one of those quarterbacks every cycle or every other cycle in Southern California. 
and that's going to rectify a lot of the issues on its own. He's going to recruit better naturally. He already had success recruiting on the West Coast. I wouldn't say, like, again, nothing's a sure thing, but they are going to be winning the Pac-12 and be relevant under him. Wouldn't you say that's as close to a guarantee as you could get? Yeah, I think out of, like, the big three hires so far with, if you want to count Florida four, um, Florida and Notre Dame and LSU and SCF, yeah, I think I feel most certain that Lincoln Riley is going to succeed at his job. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And um, just because he, he does all the things that, you know, this fan base loves. He's great, great offensive mind. Uh, he recruits his ass off and he develops quarterbacks. Like USC loves their quarterbacks. They're, the fans love, love reading about recruiting and they're super interested in recruiting and they like, you know, the flair that comes with offensive football. So, you know, he was just like a home run hire for this program. And um, he, he already got a commitment from Malachi Nelson two days ago on, on Tuesday. He's a five-star 2023 quarterback who's the number two quarterback in that class behind Arch. And then today he got a commitment from a five-star 2022 running back who was committed to him at Oklahoma. Um, so he's going to flip a lot of the guys who were committed to him at Oklahoma and, you know, have since decommitted. I think the main thing he's going to have to worry about is the linemen because there's not a ton out here on the West Coast. And on the offensive side, the offensive linemen who are elite, they've all been going to Oregon the past couple of years. So those are the battles he's going to need to win against Mario Cristobal. And that's been tough for us in the past. I think Lincoln will have better luck, uh, but it's still going to be um, – tough battles between those two programs throughout the alignment. And he's going to have to go out of the region um, to probably get deep to lemon. Portal probably help a little bit with that too. Like that's something mm-hmm. you could kind of retool, particularly with guys. Cause you know, I mean, offensive linemen, like if there's a, still a position where plug and play is almost impossible, it's, it's, it's there. I, yeah. So you mentioned the USC fan base aspect of it. It's interesting because you know, the PAC 12 has kind of fallen behind in a lot of ways with kind of the way this whole college football thing is going you know, if there's the Pac-12 needs USC to be good, I think we're stating the mm-hmm. obvious there. From a fan base perspective, you know, they weren't filling the Coliseum. I mean, I would see some of your Instagrams and it'd be like, <laughs> Jesus, it's hard. Like, yeah. this, is, this is bad. And I think it's part of the way that the Coliseum looks too, to where it's like, yeah. you know, not like the double deck, like the separation. It's just a lot mm. of gray when it's open. Yeah. And so, like, what is the temperature of the fan base? Like, is it Look, this is a problem across college football. You look, I mean, Lane mm-hmm. Kiffin kind of negged the fan base relentlessly this past year where, you know, he's mad they weren't filling up Vanderbilt the weekend before Thanksgiving. Like, is filling the Coliseum consistently again possible? Like, is it possible to get reinvigorated again? Everyone wants to compare it to the Pete Carroll level, but, like, what do you think best-case scenario for him fan base-wise is? Can they sell out? Uh, I think so. I think in 2017, Darnold's last year, they were getting 70-something thousand consistently over there at the Coliseum. I, th- I think they got 80 or above for the UCLA game when it was Darnold and Rosen uh, that year. Um, the year after, the year I got there, was when it started to dip. And I think I think in 2018, they didn't crack 60,000 the whole season. 2019, it was a little better, but not a ton better. Obviously, 2020, there was no fans. And this year, it was just 
bad. I mean, on, on Saturday against BYU, there was more BYU fans than there was SC fans at the Coliseum. And like, it almost felt like a, a road game when, when, the, when an SC on to Lyman fall started and the BYU fans cheered and like, it was like way louder than anything you heard from the SC fans during the game. And like, and then when a BYU player got a penalty, they booed. It was louder than anything you heard from the SC side. So like, I, I just think the three years of, of keeping Helton, are the, well, the two or three years of keeping him probably longer than they should have just kind of made the fan base check out. And I think that's why it, it all looked so drastic this year in terms of all the empty seats and, and things like that. I, because when, when they did keep Clay, that was before the Holiday Bowl in, tw- in 2019. <laughs> and so the next game, we're like, all right, like, what's he going to do? Like, he's got this new life. What's he going to do? And then they lost 49 24 to Iowa. <laughs> so, like, all, all the fans are just like, yeah, they're out on him before. And then they're just like completely out then, just because, like, it was like everything they had complained about. And um, so, there's like no enthusiasm there. And like, and so this whole season has been kind of a mess and they thought the interim was going to make things better, but it's probably been worse. And they got blown out at home like four or five different times. And most of these games, except for BYU were kind of the fans, the, the, the stands were emptied out by the fourth quarter. This one, they didn't just because it was a close game. And they kind of fought, fought back, but uh, it's been ugly at home this season. But I think Lincoln's going to change a lot of that. What? Uh, so it's when Pete left and Pete, it kind of became a free for all in that Southern California area, and particularly just kind of the state of California as a whole. Some of the things that get lost in that, too, as you mentioned, uh, I think you said something earlier about USC kind of being slow to adapt to kind of the modern age mm-hmm. of college football, whether it be analysts and stuff. A lot, and it's different now because NIL, but a lot of that stuff was playing the game. I would say there were some schools in the SEC that were uh, a little more uh, direct in uh, what <laughs> they could offer some kids, uh, putting it mildly. Look, does USC have the bagmen to kind of make – like, are they committed to that? Do they have, like, kind of the horses in that? It's probably aided by NIL. I mean, look, Los Angeles, you can kind of – everything's above ground now. Do they have that kind of commitment, do you think? Yeah, I think – NIL will help a lot. I think you have to remember like their downfall started like as soon as they were put on sanctions, like the heaviest sanctions and like kind of like the modern era of college football, like post SMU. Um, so like they couldn't really cheat. And me and Bruce Feldman, we wrote a story uh, a couple of weeks after Clay got fired where one of the coaches uh, said Clay Helton, Clay Helton told him like, you guys can't cheat. Like if I'm going to get fired here, it's going to be for losing. It's not going to be for cheating. So, so they weren't really above board. And you got to remember that like, uh, you got to remember that like USC was like one of the only schools that was involved with the FBI scandal on basketball and varsity blue and like the varsity to blues like admission scandal. Um, that's, so, a tough, like, that's a tough sell. So like, like, even if their coaches wanted to, I don't think they really could have, you know, cheated that much. Um, I think NIL kind of changes the game for them and kind of gives them more of an avenue to, you know, sell what LA is offering. Does beating UCLA matter at all? What is that dynamic like? You covered an Egg Bowl. Give it, put, tell. I know they're not like comparable by any means, but does that shit yeah. matter at all? What like how? What does USC and UCLA people like? think of the respective programs because like i swear to god i forget chip kelly's there half the time <laughs> i think chip might forget he's there half the time <laughs> but like 
but um yeah i mean i don't like i think there's like great joy and like when all mission mississippi state like when the egg bowl I, I think usc or ucla fans are happy when they win the game but i just think like sc fans are just more pissed when they lose like they just don't want to lose to like ucla um so I, you know that was that was a drastic fan reaction when they lost like 62 to 33 to ucla a couple of weeks ago um so i just think they get more annoyed like when they lose to like ucla and um especially notre dame i, I think notre dame is kind of the rivalry they take more pride in, not pride but you know the one that's more important to them because um, that's kind of shows where they stand nationally and honestly that rivalry game hasn't been really relevant or hasn't had like a relevant stage in in years um but i think that's that's the one they take pride in more than ucla per se well until they get involved in civil litigation over recruit i won't be impressed but uh we will jump back on this podcast again when that happens he is antonio morales Read him at the Athletic USC beat writer does a terrific job. It's good catching up, my friend. I appreciate this. Yeah, man, no problem. And uh, have fun with all the lane rumors for uh, however long he's there. Everyone listening to this probably just threw up in their car. So that's uh, <laughs> fatigue's already set in. All right, that's our show. I really appreciate you guys making it to the end. Sorry about uh, getting the pot up a little later. Technology, what are you going to do? Uh, we have Skybox's picks for you as a little treat to uh, treat to get to the finish line. So. We will just roll through them really quickly. The number you get these at could vary. So I am just going to read the same number that we got for Neil's picks. Check that out, rebelgrove.com. Go subscribe to Rebel Grove. Absolutely the best source of all misinformation, particularly as this uh, crazy, uh, silly season coaching goes along, carousel goes along, I should say. But um, let's just get on with it. Uh, Western Kentucky minus one at UTSA. Skybox is on UTSA. Uh, Oregon plus three against Utah. That game is Friday night, so get on that if you're listening to it before kickoff. Oregon plus three against Utah. Skybox is on Oregon. Baylor plus five in the Big 12 championship game against Oklahoma State. Skybox is on Baylor plus five. A little underdog heavy so far. I like it. I like it. Kent State minus two and a half against Northern Illinois. They are on Kent State minus two and a half on that one. We have Utah State versus San Diego State. Utah State plus five going up against the Aztecs, uh, San Diego State. Skybox is on Utah State, underdog there as well. App State minus two and a half at ULL. This seems like a trap, but it sounds like Skybox is taking it. I believe I did too. Appalachian State minus two and a half at Louisiana Lafayette. Billy Napier coaching his final game for the Raging Cajuns before he moves on to Florida. Skybox is on the underdog ULL. ULL beat App State by like 28 earlier in the season. That stinks to high heaven. SEC championship game, Alabama plus six and a half against Georgia. Scott Box is on Alabama plus six and a half. That should be the marquee game of the day. Houston plus ten and a half at Cincinnati American Conference Championship game. Skybox all lay in the minus ten and a half on Cincinnati. Michigan minus ten and a half against Iowa in the Big 12 championship game, or excuse me, Big 10 championship game. Michigan minus ten and a half. Skybox is on Iowa plus the ten and a half, taking the dog there. Pitt minus three against Wake Forest in the ACC championship game. Skybox is on Pitt minus three. USC plus four at Cal. This is the only non-championship game you heard Antonio Morales talk about at this point. We don't really know why this one's being played, but it is being played. Skybox is on USC. So, there you have it. 
Their two free plays of the week, Utah State plus six and a half. They gave that one out in the picks, but that's one of their free plays that are given out this week. And Baylor, Oklahoma State over 46 and a half. Baylor, Oklahoma State, 46 and a half. They're two free NFL free plays for the people. Jags plus 14. I don't even know who the hell the Jags were playing. You figure that one out. Pittsburgh, Baltimore under 44. Skybox delivering winners for the people. That's going to do it for our show today. I appreciate you listening. Thanks for continuing uh, to help this podcast grow because you guys are the tip of the spear. I really appreciate it. Got some awesome things in the works and uh, looking forward to uh, our Sunday conversation with Weldon as always. Y'all have a great weekend and we'll catch you on Sunday.